This is Shakespeare Unbarred, the podcast where I try to get you excited about Shakespeare one play at a time. Today, Shakespeare gives us one final fairy tale with the most famous stage direction ever written. It's time for The Winter's Tale. If you shall chance, Camillo, to visit Bohemia on the like occasion where all my services are now on foot, you shall see, as I have said, great difference betwixt our Bohemia and your Sicilia. Tongue-tied our queen. Speak, you. I have drunk and seen the spider. You have mistook, my lady, Polixenes for Leontes. A savage clamor. Well may I get aboard. This is the chase. I am gone forever. A sad tale's best for winter. All right, as always, we're going to start with a short summary. How short? Siri, set the timer for one minute. Okay, your timer is set for one minute. All is rotten in the state of Cecilia. King Leontes is convinced his pregnant wife Hermione is betrayed him with his best friend Polixenes. Hermione is thrown to jail where she gives birth to a daughter. Leontes remains convinced of her guilt, even after the Oracle of Delphi sends a message affirming her innocence. In grief for his mother's condition, Hermione and Leontes' son suddenly dies. Hermione collapses in court and is taken away. Paulina, her maid, tells us she's dead. Leontes regrets his actions, but by then it's too late. Paulina's husband has already been sent to kill Perdita, the baby, but he leaves her in the bulrushes before being set upon by a wild animal, exitorily pursued by bear. The baby is found by a shepherd and his son. Sixteen years later, the baby has become Perdita, a girl in love with Phariseal, who is Polixenes' son in disguise. When Polixenes finds out his son wants to marry a girl of low birth, he forbids the marriage, and the couple escapes to Cecilia, where, through a plot contrivance, Perdita is recognized as being the daughter of the king. Leontes and Polixenes reconcile, the couple is married, and Paulina reveals that Hermione isn't dead and is living in hiding all of these years. Leontes thinks this means he's found a happy ending. The rest of us aren't so sure. A sad tale's best for winter, asserts Mamilius, the doomed prince of Bohemia, and rarely has a Shakespearean character summarized his own story so well. His words are proved true as we watch The Winter's Tale, a bittersweet bit of theater that is one of the most unique Shakespeare ever devised. A cross between Pericles and Othello, the story is a fairy tale that isn't afraid to journey to the darker consequences of its plot. It's this which made the play unpopular for so many years, and it's this which has attracted the modern audience as we seek to explore stories which aren't afraid to wrestle with mature themes. The ending is just as problematic as the ones found in Measure for Measure or All's Well That Ends Well, but that's almost to be expected at this point. The entire story is tinged with all of that nihilism which Shakespeare was so fond of in his final days. Adapted from Robert Greene's Pandosto, a prose poem published in 1588, Shakespeare sets us in the kingdoms of Cecilia and Bohemia, both of which are mythical places, despite what some scholars might try to have you believe. Shakespeare's Bohemia has a desert and a shoreline, two things absent in the real Bohemia, which is in the landlocked Czech Republic. For some reason, there has been a lot of hand-wringing about this seeming paradox, with scholars doing geographical somersaults to argue that Shakespeare must have meant a different Bohemia than the one found in Eastern Europe. Of course, it's supremely unimportant whether the Bohemia in this play is meant to have any reflection with its real-world counterpart. Just as Pericles was set in some medieval nowhere, so too is the Winter's Tale set firmly in the land of Once Upon a Time. 
As with many myths and fairy tales, the story of the Winter's Tale centers on an initial sin that has repercussions which stretch across the years. This is a constant in ancient myth where entire bloodlines can be cursed because of some ancestor's cruelty to the gods. We see it again in stories like Rapunzel, who must pay for her father's decision to rob a witch's garden, and Cinderella, who is ruined by her father's poor choice in a second wife. In Pericles, our princess was the poor Marina, who was sentenced to die by wicked foster parents. But here it's Perdita, who was sentenced to die by her own father, and instead raised by shepherds in the wild. Perdita is crucial to the Winter's Tale, and is as essential to her play as Julius Caesar is to his. She has only a little more stage time than Caesar, but says almost as much. She is less a character than a human MacGuffin, for she is the play's driving force, the source of its drama and its resolution. It is her creation which causes Leontes' initial jealous rage, and is her which causes Florizial to war with his father and flee to Sicilia in the final scenes of the play. Since Hermione is pregnant from the moment she appears, it could also be said that Perdita is a presence on stage almost from the moment the curtain rises. Given how central Perdita is to the story, it's unfortunate that Shakespeare didn't make her more of a character. She's no Rosalind or Beatrice with a host of clever quips, and spends much of the play dancing and waiting for men to tell her what to do. Far more intriguing, in terms of feminine creations, are Hermione and Paulina. Both stand their ground when confronted with Leontes' rage and his attempts at humiliation. Rather than confront her in private, Leontes accuses his wife in open court, forcing Hermione to withstand not just her husband's scrutiny, but those of her subjects as well. Fortunately, Hermione is more than up to the task. I have said she's an adulteress. I have said with whom? More. She's a traitor, and Camillo is a federy with her, and one that knows what she should shame to know herself, but with her most vile principle that she's a bench-swerver, even as bad as those that vulgars give bold titles, I and privy to this, their late escape. No, by my life, privy to none of this. How will this grieve you, when you shall come to clearer knowledge that you thus have published me? Gentle, my lord, you scarce can write me truly then to say you did mistake. No. If I mistake in those foundations which I build upon, the centre is not big enough to bear a schoolboy's top. Away with her to prison! He who shall speak for her is a far-off guilty, but that he speaks. There's some ill planet reigns. I must be patient till the heavens look with an aspect more favourable. Good my lords, I am not prone to weeping, as our sex commonly are, the want of which vain dew, perchance, shall dry your pities. But I have that honourable grief lodged here, which burns worse than tears drown. Beseech you all, my lords, with thoughts so qualified as your charities shall best instruct you. Measure me. Now later in the trial scene, Hermione will continue to defend herself. Dramatically, this remains one of the play's most engaging scenes. There's a historical echo here. Hermione, like Anne Boleyn, is dragged into the court and declared an adulteress. This alone must have given the scene more than a little resonance for an audience still grieving the death of Elizabeth I, who, as you'll remember, is Anne Boleyn's daughter. 
But The Winter's Tale is no history, and whatever comments Shakespeare might have been making about any injustice served Anne Boleyn were well masked by the play's fairy tale plot. Since what I am to say must be but that which contradicts my accusation, and the testimony on my part no other but what comes from myself, it shall scarce boot me to say not guilty. Mine integrity being counted falsehood shall, as I express it, be so received. But thus, if powers divine behold our human actions as they do, I doubt not then, but innocence shall make false accusation blush, and tyranny tremble at patience. Hermione dies not long after, or does she? Again, Shakespeare shows us his dramatic medal by not showing us Hermione's conspiracy with Paulina. We share in Leontes' horror because we don't know that Hermione has secretly plotted with her faithful servant to effect an escape. Paulina herself never gives away the game, making her one of the cleverest women in all of Shakespeare. Her speech after Hermione's supposed death is a wonder when one considers that she's actually playing a part. She, after all, is the only one who knows the queen isn't dead at all. Paulina will lose her husband not long after, and she stays in Cecilia for the next 16 years, both as a spy for Hermione and presumably to keep stoking Leontes' guilt so that he'll never be at peace. In the fifth act, when Leontes' lords try to urge him to remarry, it's Paulina who comes forward to remind Leontes of what he did. You are one of those would have him wed again. If you would not so, you pity not the state, nor the remembrance of his most sovereign name. There is none worthy respecting her that's gone. Besides, the gods will have fulfilled their secret purposes. For has not the divine Apollo said, is not the tenor of his oracle, the King Leontes shall not have an heir till his lost child be found? Which that it shall is all as monstrous to our human reason as my Antigonus to break his grave and come again to me, who on my life did perish with the infant. Tis your counsel, my lord should to the heavens be contrary, oppose against their wills. Now, it's said that Hamlet and Titus Andronicus are revenge plays, but The Winter's Tale is rarely classified as such, even though, in a way, that is exactly what it is. For 16 years, Hermione hides from her husband, while Paulina remains at court and keeps Leontes feeling forever guilty for what he did. Paulina reveals Hermione only when it benefits Hermione herself. Her goal is to reunite mother and daughter. By then, Leontes is no longer her concern. When one considers what both Paulina and Hermione had to do to survive for those 16 years, one cannot help but be awed by the strength of their character. At first glance, it seems as if actors playing Leontes have very little time to portray his slip into a jealous rage. One minute he's begging Polixenes to stay, and the next he's convinced that he's been cuckolded by his friend. It's certainly possible to play the scene as if his jealousy is a sudden affliction. If people in Shakespeare can fall in love at first sight, then why can't they fall in jealousy at first sight too? And yet, it would be far more logical to assume that jealousy has always been a part of Leontes persona, threatening to emerge at any moment. It's far more likely that Leontes already suspects his wife when the play begins, and by imploring Polixenes to stay, he is creating a test that will allow him to watch his friend with his wife and see how easily Polixenes bows to Hermione's will. Farewell, our brother. <sighs> Tongue-tied, our queen. Speak you, 
I had thought, sir, to have held my peace until you'd drawn oaths from him not to stay. You, sir, charge him too coldly. Tell him you are sure all in Bohemia is well. The satisfaction the bygone day proclaimed. Say this to him. He's beat from his best ward. <laughs> well said, Hermione. Dramatically, this by far is the stronger choice, as it gives the actor playing Leontes something to do. He comes onto stage already anxious to prove the suspicions in his heart. Leontes is the culmination of the jealous characters Shakespeare created elsewhere. In the comedies, jealousy is a vice to be laughed at, Master Ford is a fool, and even Oberon is too pompous to be taken seriously. As for Othello, he has to be driven towards jealousy. If he came by it naturally, Iago wouldn't have had to work so hard to convince him of Desdemona's unfaithfulness. But Iago wouldn't have to do anything with Leontes. Indeed, Harold Bloom, the famed scholar, calls Leontes, quote, an Othello who is his own Iago. Many audiences watch The Winter's Tale with the foreknowledge of Hermione's innocence, but it would do us good to remember that for the first two acts, we have no definitive proof other than her word. Shakespeare purposely keeps her guilt ambiguous until the message from the Oracle arrives, which is a plot point meant to settle the question once and for all. Up to this point, Hermione's guilt is actually an open question. Shakespeare wisely doesn't show us what Hermione and Polixenes discuss in the first scene when they go off on their own, and his intent is to provoke in us the same suspicions that are in Leontes himself. One of the reasons Othello is such a masterpiece is that we can understand why the Moor slips into his jealous rage. Iago's manipulation is so successful that we know that we ourselves might have been fooled. Similarly, we are meant in the beginning of the Winter's Tale to wonder if Leontes might not be right to suspect his wife. This is, of course, the most dramatic way to present the story. We ourselves are questioning Hermione's innocence, and so we ourselves are instantly more engaged. The Great Twist and it is a plot twist, even though it's been ruined by 500 years of performance, is that Leontes is wrong. The oracle proves it. And unwilling to concede defeat, Leontes turns from having our sympathies to becoming one of the greatest villains in the canon. He destroys his family, and in doing so, his kingdom, since he causes the death of his only heir. He is Othello without the Moor's shame. Imagine an Othello who refuses to admit that Desdemona was innocent even after Iago's confession, and you have some idea of the monster Shakespeare put onto Cecilia's throne. Here, then, is the one thing which makes The Winner's Tale such a challenging play. We are made to sympathize with Leontes, only to realize that he's mad. The play's champions often eschew this idea and present Leontes' jealousy as being some sort of mystical affliction, and this may make Hermione the innocent hero, but it takes away from the great drama that Shakespeare wrote. The whole point of the first three acts is that there's a mystery. We aren't supposed to know how it turns out, and perhaps we are wrongly supposed to sympathize with Leontes so that we can be twisted in the third act when Leontes proves what a monster he actually is. It is true that the third act sees an incredible transformation when, after the death of Amelius, Leontes does a 180 and suddenly regrets his behavior. This transformation is so sudden that it's tempting to go back to that theory that his jealousy was a magical affliction, but the truth is that Leontes is simply mercurial, and his sudden change is not a glitch, but a feature in his character. This is who he is, and it's what makes him such a frightening person to behold. 
In the modern age, we might be tempted to have him examined by a shrink, but in the fairy tale world of Cecilia, he is beyond our help. He is the Mad King. Leontes is another Lear. The ending of the play is generally treated as a reconciliation scene in which Leontes is reunited with his lost wife and daughter. Indeed, the play is often celebrated as a story of renewal, with winter being symbolic for the dark days we must endure before arriving at the rebirth of spring. But the dark days don't actually end in The Winter's Tale, and the ending isn't a rebirth at all. Leontes is reunited with his family, but there's little evidence they are happily reconciled with him. In Measure for Measure, Shakespeare went through great maneuvers to imitate a happy ending, even if it meant betraying Isabella to do so. In The Winter's Tale, though, Shakespeare didn't have the heart to betray Hermione. How could he? Leontes condemns her and orders Antigonus to kill their daughter. Meanwhile, his son dies out of grief for his doomed mother. Hermione is forced to fake her own death and remain in hiding for 16 years. To imagine that she would reconcile with Leontes after all this, in a single scene, no less, is offensive to human nature. And yet, this is exactly how the ending of the play is often played, even though the text suggests that Hermione's reappearance is more about revenge than forgiveness. She only has one tiny speech when she returns, and none of it is directed at Leontes. You gods, look down, and from your sacred vials pour your graces upon my daughter's head. Tell me, my own, where hast thou been preserved? Where lived? How found thy father's court? For thou shalt hear that I, knowing by Paulina that the oracle gave hope thou wast in being, have preserved myself to see the issue. After all this, Leontes has a single speech of his own, where he desperately tries to pretend that all's well that ends well. He tells Paulina to marry, and then asks her to lead them all away to explain what has happened in this wide gap of time since first we were deserved. Had Shakespeare been a lesser writer, I might be inclined to buy the play's supposedly happy ending, but Shakespeare does such great service to Hermione and Paulina in the first third of the play that it's frustrating to see producers and directors abandon them in the play's final act. The curtain falls before any of the women who Leontes has abused can respond to him, which is probably for the best. If any of the women were given a chance to reply, Leontes would probably hear a lot of unpleasant things about his character. The Winter's Tale is often portrayed as a sad play with a happy end, but Shakespeare's nihilism would never permit such a thing. Hermione reunites with Perdita, and Perdita gets to marry her Florizial, but Leontes escapes the story without ever being punished for his crimes. He's a monster who acted monstrous and then does the most monstrous thing of all. He ignores his crimes and expects everyone else to do the same. At the end of the third act, Father Time steps on the stage and takes us 16 years into the future, where we find Perdita as the heroine of a romantic comedy that is entirely her own. Florizio, the disguised prince, is wooing Perdita, the lost princess, in a pastoral setting so different from the halls of Cecilia that we are literally swept into a different play. These your unusual weeds to each part of you to give a life. No shepherdess, but Flora peering in April's front. <laughs> this your sheep shearing is as a meeting of the petty gods and you the queen on. Oh, sir, <laughs> my gracious lord, to chide at your extremes it not becomes me. Oh, pardon that I name them. Your high self, the gracious mark of the land, you have obscured with a swain's wearing. Mm -hmm. And me... Poor lowly maid, most 
goddess-like pranked up. <laughs> but that our feasts in every mess have folly and the feeders digest it with a custom. I should blush to see you so attired. Swoon, I think, to show myself a glass. I bless the time when my good falcon made her flight across thy father's ground. No, Jove afford you cause. There then enters a group of peasants, among them Flurzeal's father in disguise, and there follows a lengthy scene of music and dance, which does little to advance the plot, but a lot to make us smile after so many scenes of darkness and cruelty. This whole scene has many admirers, and I would be one of them if I encountered it on its own. Were this its own play, I might be thoroughly charmed. A grand celebration of love and ecstasy, it has a bonus of allowing us to enjoy Autolycus, the last of Shakespeare's lovable rogues. Ah, what a fool honesty is, and trust his sworn brother, a very simple gentleman. I've sold all my trumpery. Not a counterfeit stone, not a ribbon glass, pomander, brooch, table book, ballad knife, tape, glove, shoe tie, bracelet, horn ring to keep my pack from fasting. They throng who should buy first, as if my trinkets had been hallowed and brought a benediction to the buyer. By which means I saw whose purse was best in picture, and what I saw, to my good use, I remembered. My clown who wants but something to be a reasonable man, grew so in love with the wench's song that he would not stir his petty toes till he had both tune and words, which so drew the rest of the herd to me that all their other senses stuck in ears. You might have pinched a placket. It was senseless. T'was nothing to geld a piece of a purse. I would have filed keys off that hung in chains. No hearing, no feeling, but my sir's song and admiring the nothing of it. So that in this time of lethargy, I picked and cut most of their festival purses. And had not the old man come in with a hoo-bub against his daughter and the king's son and scared my chuffs from the chaff, I had not left a purse alive in the whole army. As charming and amusing as Autilicus is, it's hard to be as enamored with him as I am with Falstaff or Falconbridge, if only because the character has no emotional connection with any of the play's heroes. He's an addendum, and though Shakespeare is smart enough to make him part of the plot, he gives his clothes to Felizial and tells Perdita's family where she's gone, the man remains a cipher, a role probably added to the script because Shakespeare needed to give some work to a friend. He's an addendum, and though Shakespeare is smart enough to make him part of the plot, he gives his clothes to Florizial and tells Perdita's family where she's gone, the man remains a cipher, a role probably added to the script because Shakespeare needed to give some work to a friend. Nonetheless, if one can forget that he's largely unnecessary, he remains a delight, as does much of the dancing and singing that characterize the whole fourth act. Still, this whole part is so clearly a piece of another world that it can't help but stick out in the dark and unhappy one that Shakespeare created in the rest of the play. Reading it, it's almost as if Shakespeare became alarmed that he was coming too close to creating a play whose nihilism would rival King Lear's. The unevenness of the play's tone, coupled with its problematic ending, will probably ensure that The Winter's Tale will always remain something of an outlier in the canon, a thing more attractive to scholars than people who are looking for an entertaining night at the theatre. Yet, the play has seen more than a few productions in the last couple of decades, and this would suggest that we are becoming more intrigued by Shakespeare's more complicated tales. The play is one of the most unique in the canon, and if one strips away the fairy tale trappings, we are left with a very human story of jealousy and revenge. Even the ending is more human than we probably like to believe. Leontes, after all, would hardly be the first man to escape justice after acting with shame. 
And now comes the part in the podcast where I talk about film versions of the play I've discussed. The BBC gave us their take on The Winner's Tale way, way back in 1981, and as with all their work, it's a complete, if plodding, presentation of the text. Far more interesting is the filmed version of a 1999 production at the Royal Shakespeare Company directed by Gregory Doran, which presents the play in gothic splendor, highlighting its darker themes. Either of these would be worth a watch if you're interested in seeing The Winter's Tale more or less as Shakespeare intended. However, I'm going to also recommend another adaptation of the play, Christopher Wielden's 2014 ballet with music by Joby Talbot. Given that this podcast celebrates Shakespeare, it may seem counterintuitive to applaud an adaptation that erases every single line Shakespeare wrote. On the other hand, the ballet distills the winter's tale down to its essence with such perfection that it's hard not to be impressed. It compresses the action of the first three acts into one and allows the dancers to reenact the story's essential points. There's a king, he gets jealous, and everyone suffers. The second act, which is bright and full of celebratory dance, is a grand adaptation of Shakespeare's own pastoral scenes, which themselves call for music and song. And the third act returns us to Cecilia, where the reconciliation, like it or love it, is played for all it's worth. There's a DVD of this production available, filmed in London in 2015, and it more or less captures the spirit of the piece. True, the ballet takes away Shakespeare's language and erases some characters, you won't find Autolycus doing any pirouettes, but it manages to tell Shakespeare's story in a concise and elegant way that succeeds where full productions often fail. It also heightens Paulina's own tragedy, for without the text to suggest that she will marry again, she is left alone on stage when the curtain falls, the lone survivor of 16 years of abuse. As always, I'll leave links to everything I've discussed on the show page. Well, that's it for this episode of Shakespeare Unbarred. Next week, it's both myth and history. It's time for the story of Cymbeline. Thanks so much for listening to Shakespeare Unbarred. For more episodes or for more information about what I do with my time, please visit www.joelfishmain.net. There you'll find all the episodes of Shakespeare Unbarred, as well as information about how to get your hands on a copy of my book, The Thunder of Giants a book about two eight-foot-tall women who struggle to survive in a world much too small to contain them. It's available from St. Martin's Press. Pick up your copy today, preferably at full price. That's it for Shakespeare and Bard. 34 plays down, four to go. Will Shakespeare as a play? Let's go and cough through it. <laughs> <laughs>